Okay, I want to talk about the Kruvim. I know that uh, there's less enthusiasm to talk about inanimate objects than uh, the more animate things in the Torah, but we're going to try. The Kruvim are the names of something that were on the Aron HaKodesh. The Aron HaKodesh was a box. And in that box, there was a box that was very nice looking because it was inlaid gold. Or gold and then wood and then gold. You know, it's hard to make things out of gold because they bend. Right? So when you buy something that's gold, it's usually not gold. It's like made out of wood or iron or something. And it just looks like it's gold. So the Aaron HaKodesh was gold. Which means it looked like it was gold. Because the inside of it and the outside of it were made out of gold. And it was kind of a container. It was a box. And in this box, uh, they put, the Moshe Rabbeinu was directed, put the Luchot. The Luchot Habrit, the uh, commandments written on tablets. He put them in there. Now, there may be some other things, and we know in the Chumash it says that some other things were put in there. But let's try to focus on what seems to be the main um, so after he put in the Luchot, and apparently he put them in from the top. Like he built this box, and the top was missing. Not, well, not yet. It was not yet a top. He put in the Luchot, and then he put on the top. What's the top called in the Torah? What? Well, it has a name. The top. Now another curious feature of the Aron was that the badim, the staffs uh, with which the Aaron was carried when they had to move from place to place in the Midbar, were permanent. I mean, not that they couldn't be taken out, but they weren't taken out. It was the way these sticks were put into the Aaron was that there were tabaot, there were rings, two rings on either side, and you put this staff into it, and therefore you were able to carry it on your shoulder. Carry the Aron uh, from place to place. So the Aron is a box. It's covered with a covering, which was not uncovered ever again, apparently. And on top of that, there are Kruvim. There are Kruvim. So we'd like to look first a little bit to see if we could discover what these Kruvim were I mean it was apparently some kind of a I use a bad word a pestle some kind of a um, an image that was put on top of the Aron it was put on top of the, the Aron as you know in the Torah there, there really isn't a clue as to why you needed the Kruvim. It's true that the Torah says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu Mibain HaKruvim, but it's not clear that if there were no Kruvim, 
that the reception would have been more difficult. I mean, it's hard for us to understand, it's hard for us to understand what uh, extra the Kruvim did for the Arom. The Arom Bechalal is a bit of a mystery, because you know that no one ever saw the Arom. Because the only one who went into the Kodesh Kodeshim, the place of the Aron, was the Kohen Gadol on Yom HaKippurim. Okay, he had a view. Actually, when he went in, he had the Ketoret and the smoke and this, I don't even know if he saw anything. But Am Yisrael, Am Yisrael never saw the Aron. Maybe in the desert, where they moved from place to place, the Levium, so the Aron, but in general, it was true. And certainly in the Beit HaMikdash that Shlomo HaMelech built, it was true that no one saw the Aron. No one saw the Aron, no one saw the Kruvim. Now in Chazal there are all kinds of this interesting information about the Kruvim, but what I'd like to do is learn a few psukim with you to sort of like see how this all fits together. The first pasuk, of course, is in Breshit. Peregimu pasuk Tavdalit. Vayigareshet ha'adam. Right after the chait of Adam and Chava, the punishment, one of the punishments was, Vayigareshet ha'adam. He was exiled from Gan Eden. Mikedem legan Eden. I'm sorry. Vayigareshet ha'adam. Vayashkein mikedem legan Eden. Et akruvim. So Mikeden Leganeden, this this seems to be the entry point into Ganeden. How are you going to make sure that Adam and Chava don't fight their way back into Ganeden? Because Ganeden is a place, and if it's a place, it has a door. And if uh, Adam and Chava are not happy with the world in which they were placed, maybe they'll try to get back. He says, the Post says, uh, that's enough. I mean, the rest of the Pasuk is also quite difficult, but we're not... Eta Kruvin. So, wh- what was it exactly that was placed there? Eta Kruvin. Chazal say, Kruvin Amalachim. Which is like substituting one mystery word for another mystery word. Because what do you mean, Malachim? Malachim don't look like anything. Uh, anything in particular. I mean, they could look like anything. Right? And the Malachim came to Avram Avinu. It seems, without getting into theological argumentation, that they looked like people. Because Avram Avinu didn't mention, oh, hi, you know, so nice of you angels to come to visit me. At least he didn't mention it clearly and obviously. So, to say that the Kruvim are angels is kind of, uh, 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 doesn't help us. Because the Kruvim that were on the Aron looked like something, but they didn't, they didn't look like angels. Because angels don't look like anything. I mean, at least, that's what I think. I mean, you may think that angels, like, flap around and have wings and all of that, and it's true that there is a tradition of angelology like that angel somehow developed a persona over the years because you know that when the 
great painters, you know, what today I consider the great painters will not take a stand. But the great painters had to paint angels. It was very hard to paint something that doesn't look like anything. Right, so, they had to, so there was this tradition that grew up that angels looked a little bit like people, but they had wings. Some painters thought they should have little wings, and others thought they should have really big wings. I don't know anything about that. But from this pasuk in Breshit, we don't learn anything about the Kruvin. Now, in Shemot Perikafe, which happens coincidentally to fall in our parsha, which is probably why we're talking about the Kruvin, let's read a little bit. The kaporet, you remember, is the covering of the aron. Right? The aron doesn't have a door, but it has a cover. And you can put the cover on. Once you put it on, you can take it off. But you could take it off, I suppose. Right? The kaporet. Then the pasuk says, Kruvim, again, we don't know what they are. Zahav, they're made out of gold. But here it says, Miksha ta'aselta. Miksha means, Miksha means, there are two ways to make something out of metal, right? You could drop forge it, or you can beat it. <laughs> like, let's say you want to make a, you want to make a metal something or other. You know, people do that today, like a, a stable which is you take a lot of garbage and you glue it together and you put it in the middle of a street and you say it's a stable. So when you want to do that, you have to either shape the metal by melting it down and then putting it into a mold or you take a hammer and you beat at it until it ends up looking like you want it to look. So what is miksha? What does the word miksha mean? Right, you beat it. You took. You start out with a, a glob of gold, right? That doesn't look like anything, and you beat away at it until it looks like whatever you want it to look like. That's called miksha. Miksha ta'aseuta bishnei ktsota kaporet. Ktsota kaporet means the. You put these two kruvim, one at each end of the of the kaporet. I'm not going to be so interested today in finding out exactly where the the Kruvim were, but this is an issue for Chazal. Where were they exactly? How big were they? How small were they? How did they fill in the space? But look at Rashi. Rashi says, Tmut partsuf tinok lahem. You see that Rashi? That they had, a, they had a partsuf. That itself is a chidush. Right? They had a partsuf. There was an actual face that they had. They looked like something. And what was it they looked like? A tinok. And Chazal say, Chazal say that the, the word kruvim might be an amalgam of two words. Ke, that's a Hebrew word. Right? Ke and rubia. That's an Aramaic word. That means a child. But, uh, okay, that's what Rashi said. But they look like children. Why they look like children? What's the good of children being on top of the Aron HaKodesh? Were they both the same sex children? We don't, uh, we don't know that. We don't know that. Okay. 
פסוק י"ט, ועשה כרוב אחד מקצה מזה, כרוב אחד מקצה מזה, ונקפור תעשו את הכרובים על שני קצותיו. Each one, each כרוב is on the edge of the כפורת, one to the right say and one to the left. אוקיי. Uh, okay. Rashi goes through some other details. Let's, uh, let's look at פסוק כ'. והיו הכרובים פורסי כנפיים למעלה. פורסי כנפיים means that their wings were extended. I guess if you think of a bird, you know, birds can either, like, park their wings, or they can extend their wings. They have a choice. So I guess these kruvim who had the face of children, each of them had the face of a child, had wings that were extended. Sochachim v'kanfen hem ala kaporet. So each one was standing or placed at the edge of the kaporet, one to the right and one to the left, but the wings somehow were covered the kaporet. It was the wings were not backwards out of the, the back of the, of the kruvim, but the wings covered up the kaporet. Uh, so this is detail. Uh, what difference does it make? where the wings were and what the wings were and what they were doing. This is not, the Torah doesn't let us in on all of this. Pasukav, I'm sorry, So we know where the wings are, and now it says that the panima ish al achiv, they're facing each other. El hakaporet yupnei akruvim. I don't know exactly what that means. El hakaporet, they were somehow, the kaporet again, they're standing on the kaporet. So they're facing each other, but looking down a little bit, also, to the kaporet. And then we have this pasuk, which is, uh, which is so important to us. I'm, uh, no, I'm sorry, pasuk kavalev. Okay, pasuk kavalev. V'natata et kaporet al haron milamala. So of course you have to put the Eidut, you have to put the Eidut in first, before you put in the Kaporet. Even though the Pasuk says it in the opposite, in the opposite way, so we know that there's, there, are, there are certain issues about, there are always certain issues about uh, um, order of things. But now we have a Pasuk of great importance, Pasuk Kavbet. Pasuk Kavbet says, V'no'adeti lecha sham. No adati, that's the, the word like Beit Vad, a meeting place. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to Moshe Rabbeinu, I will meet with you there. And I will speak to you from, it'll seem to you that my voice is coming from just above the Kaporet. Right, that's where my voice will seem to you to be coming. So I don't know if this is a this is a rationale like we now why are they kruvim because God's voice comes from there and if they didn't have kruvim God's voice would come from there anyway I mean that seems to be the the issue. And in fact, what we call Torah, what we call the Torah was taught to B'nai Yisrael by Moshe Rabbeinu in the desert. In the 38 years or the 39 years that they drayed around 
from the Chet Egel until Yoshua took them into Eretz Yisrael, Moshe Rabbeinu taught them the Torah. Now it may be that Moshe Rabbeinu had learned the Torah when he was up on Har Sinai. Even though from Har Sinai came down from Har Sinai in Yom Kippurim with the Luchot, with the second tablets. And those second tablets had the Ten Commandments on them. And even though according to many Rishonim, according to many Rishonim, the Aseret Dibrot somehow contained Kola Torah Kula, right? All the Torah is, if you scratch hard at the Aseret Dibrot, you'll find all of the Torah. And in fact, Rav Sadiagon wrote a small book in which he tries to show how all the mitzvot can be divided into the ten categories in the Aseret Dibrot. Nevertheless, in spite of all of that, B'nai Yisrael didn't receive what we call the Torah until Moshe Rabbeinu started teaching it in the desert. And what did Moshe Rabbeinu teach? He didn't teach just the mitzvot, but he taught the form of the Torah that we have now, which is an amalgam of history and mitzvot. What happened to B'nai Yisrael? What they was to think about? What Moshe Rabbeinu said? What the prophecy of Bilam was? Etc. 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 And that interspersed in the book of Bamidbar and the book of, of Dvarim a mitzvot. So that's how we receive the Torah. And that Torah that was received, as we know, was written down. Was written down word for word as Moshe Rabbeinu had heard it. It's a bachloket in the Gemara whether the writing of the Torah was done at the end of the 40 years in the desert, that Moshe Rabbeinu said, oh, we finished the Torah, I'm going to sit down and write it, and he wrote it from beginning to end and gave, it, gave a copy to each of the Shvatim, each of the tribes as described at the end of Dvarim, or that Moshe Rabbeinu wrote the Torah as he went along. Right? We have a Torah, and our Torah is written on Yuriot. Right? There are pieces of parchment, you write the parchment, you write what there is of the then you sew it up to the next piece. This may be the way Moshe made it. Anyway, it's a machloket in the Gemara. It's a machloket in the Gemara. We don't know what the history was. We don't know because they didn't have, there was no YouTube in those days. If there had there been, we would know exactly at least four minutes of what happened exactly. But uh, um, we don't know. So it's a machloket in the Gemara. But everybody agrees, I mean, it's important to understand that there is no machloket about the fact that the Torah was taught to B'nai Yisrael during all of those years. And the way it was taught that Moshe Rabbeinu went to the Old Moed, he heard the voice of God teaching him the Torah, then Moshe Rabbeinu went and he taught it to the elder, Yoshua, to the elders, each one taught the other, as the Gemara says as well, the Rabbam quotes it the, as, a, as, a, as a fact. That this is the way the Torah was learned. And by the end of the 40 years, everybody knew all of the Torah and either had the Torah or Moshe Rabbeinu was about to write the Torah. So that this pasuk is the essential pasuk. There are several psukim of this kind, but it's an essential pasuk that tells us how B'nai Yisrael received the Torah. And I've told you many times, at least twice, that, that what we call Shavuot is not the holiday of receiving the Torah. It may be the holiday of Matan Torah. Maybe that holiday, but it doesn't represent the receiving of the entirety of the Torah. But that happened over time. 
What happened at, ha- at Shavuot was that B'nai Yisrael became aware of the fact that a Kodesh Baruch Hu was going to give a Torah. That this was reasonable, not reasonable, but this was actually going to happen. And that was something that, uh, that was quite remarkable. And that's what made it possible for Moshe Rabbeinu to teach, to teach the Torah. Rashi says, Pasuk Bet, when the time comes for us to speak, this is the place in which we will speak. And then Rashi says, famous Rashi, there's a really a, a conflict. One Pasuk says he was inside, the other Pasuk says he was outside. There's a Pasuk in Bamidbar. Umisham Yotsei Vinishma the Moshe Baomad. Moshe Rabbeinu could have been in the old Moed, but he heard the voice coming from from inside and the 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 Aron Hakod the the Kaporet and between the Kruvim, etc. So this is what this is what the pasuk this is what the pasuk says. Now the pasuk these pasukim don't help us in understanding really. What the Kruvin were, what they looked like, except that Rashi says they had the face of a child, and what they, why we need them, and what purpose they really, uh, uh, they really served. Because even though the Torah says that the Kruvim are, are a, and the Kudat Siyum, they're a, a point of departure for something, the voice of God to Moshe Rabbeinu, but it's not clear to us why this is important. I mean, it could have been just a Kaporet, what if it would have been bad, about Moshe Rabbeinu hearing God's voice, me'ala kaporet, which is a particular place. Why do you need the kruvim? <coughs> There's another pasuk, paraglav in Zion, pasuk Zion, vayashnei kruvim zahav miksha asa otam mishnei kitzot kaporet. Again, a repeat of what we have just learned. Let's look at, at page two. Now, Perek Havad Pasuk Aleph and Pasuk Lamed Aleph, they're two Pasukim. Perek Havad, which is our Pasha also, remarkably. Right? We're still in the Pasha of Truma. Even though this year we're reading Truma and not Truma Tetzaveh, there's still something to talk about. There's only, we only get half. So the Pasuk says, Veda Mishkan Ta'aseh, Esayiri, O Cheshmuch Zar. So, you know that the Mishkan, the walls of the Mishkan were, were curtains. Tchelet V'agaman B'tolat Shani, this is the stuff that it was made out of. We don't, I'm not going to enter those words. Now listen. Kruvim Ma'aseh Choshev Ta'aseh Otam. What are we talking about? What's the subject? The Yeriot. What are Yeriot? Yeriot are curtains. Right? The curtains that were the walls of the Mishkan in the desert. They were portable. Right? You could take them off, put them back together. They stood on, on pillars, on posts, which were rooted in weights. 
You, know, you had a weight, you put a post into the weight, and you had a cross beam, and you hung curtains on it. Just like that. Just like you might do in somebody's shower. In that pasuk that talks about the Yiriot, it says, Kruvim ta'aseltam. Now what does that mean? Kruvim ta'aseltam. So Rashi says, Rashi who never fails to help us out, Rashi says, Kruvim ma'aseh choshev. Choshev, ma'aseh choshev means a, uh, an artisan. Not something that anybody can do. A ma'aseh choshev is something that only uh, people who know the malacha know how to do. You know that when you watch an artisan do something, you always think you could also do it. Until you try. And then you're not able to do it. Right? But, but in other words, an artisan is a person who can do re- in real what we can do in our heads. Right? That's an artisan. So, that's Masei Choshev. Rashi says, Rashi says, That they, that in the Ariga, in the weave of these curtains, the artisans would draw Kruvim. Not draw, but I mean they would weave it in. There would be pictures of Kruvim all over. Rashi not only says that, he says it's not just uh, you know where you where you sew together the the uh, the uh, the uh, thing that you that you made, but So it as it turns out that the that the kruvim that were on the curtains that made the mishkan were also kind of the same. One was here, and one was there. And then, uh, What does that mean? Rashi says that the kruvim, which now is a word that we don't understand at all, I mean, we understand it less than we understood it before. Where Rashi said that the Kruvim and the Aron Kodesh had the Parzuf. They looked like children. Now he says the Kruvim that were in the Mishkan, they were Parzuf Echad Mikan, Parzuf Echad Mikan, Ari Mitzadzeh, V'Nesher Mitzadzeh. Pasuk Lamed Aleph, the last Pasuk in the Perik, Vasita Parochet, Parochet. What's the Parochet? It's the name of the curtain that divides the Kodesh and the Kodesh Kodashim. There was a curtain. In other words, there were curtains that sort of created the, the, the Chatzer of the Mishkan, that rectangle. And here's a curtain that, that separated the Kodesh from the Kodesh Kodashim. So that curtain... You have to put on that also Kruvim. And Rashi says, you see the last Rashi? Kruvim. Tsiurim shall briot yaseba. Before there was a lion and there was an eagle. And now they're putting more stuff. I don't know what else. 
you know what is in the Beit, uh, in the Mishkan Safari. But Rashi said, Sirim shall briot, Sirim shall briot yaseba. Okay, a few more psukim. We have to learn for a few more psukim. The, in Malachim Aleph, Perik Vav, there are descriptions of the Beit HaMikdash that Shlomo HaMelech built. And those descriptions of the Beit HaMikdash that Shlomo HaMelech built are not always the same as the descriptions of the Mishkan. They contain elements that are special. So here we go. By Dvir. Dvir is the word that's used in the book of Malachim for Kodesh Kodashim. The Beit HaMikdash that Shlomo HaMelech built had three parts. Ulam, Heichal, and Dvir. Right? That's what Ulam is the big court, and Heichal is the Kodesh, and uh, Dvir is Kodesh Kodashim. But those are the words that they use in Lachim. But Yasmin Dvir Shnei Kruvim, Atzei Shemen, Eser Amot Komato. Do you have any idea what this is? Now, Atzei Shemen, let's say Atzei Shemen is good wood, strong wood, like olive wood. Olive wood is strong, I guess. I mean, if anybody, if somebody here doesn't know anything about woodworking, so I'll make believe I do. But if somebody does know, so I won't say anything. <laughs> so olive wood is like hard to work with, but it's very, very strong. So Rashi says, Atzi Shemen, you see Rashi, A Zeta means Zayat trees, olive trees. Eser Amot Komato, it's ten, ten Ama high. Now ten Ama, that's a lot. Let's say this is an Ama. This is an Ama, but it may not be a standard Ama. But how different could it be from whatever the standard Ama is? You know, I mean, this is the Ama from here to here, right? That's the Amma. So an Amma is a, in, if we speak in the language of the Altaheim, it's a foot. It's a foot. So ten feet, you all know when you are, were looking for Shaduchim, that's when you learned how high, tall different people are. So they offered you a Shidduch of somebody who is ten feet high. I'm not sure that everybody wants to marry a basketball player. But even basketball players, you know, 10 feet high, that's quite, uh, that's quite high. That's quite high. So Rashi says, Raglehem b'kaka omdim, echad mitzafon l'aron, echad mitzafon l'aron, l'aron al-badav. These two kruvim were made out of wood, and they were standing on the ground. And where were they standing on the ground? In the dvir. In the Kodesh Kodeshim. So now the Kodesh Kodeshim is a little crowded. The Kodesh Kodeshim has an Aron in it. And the Aron has Badim. Right? That you could carry. You're not going to carry it any place, but that's too bad. It's, it, they have it anyway. On the Aron there are Kruvim. And the Kruvim stand at one, each at one end of the Kruvim, like it says in the Chodesh. And the wings are on top. The wings are, on, are, are kind of the way it is. Right? The, the wings. And besides that, in this very small room, there is now, there are now two guests. Two Kruvim. They, I guess they're Kruvim, they look the same. I guess, I don't know. And where are these Kruvim doing? They're standing on the ground. Who put them there? Shlomo Melech put them there. 
Why did Shlomo Amalek put them there? Ooh, we haven't got a clue. Right? Rashi says. Whatever Rashi says. He tells us how they fit in. Rashi's interested. Uh, that's what Chazal were interested in also. And um, we can't stop for that. Pasuk Kafei, Ve'eser Ba'ama, Kruva, Sheni, Midah, Echad, Bekezer, Echad, Eshnei, Kruvim. Komat HaKruva, Echad, Eser Ba'ama, Bekein HaKruva, Sheni, the emphasis is on the height. Ve'etein et HaKruvim, Metoch HaBayit HaPenimi, Ve'yifresu et Kanfei HaKruvim, Ve'atiga Kanaf Echad, Bekir, Ve'kanaf HaKruva, Sheni, to summarize this pasuk, they were big. They were big and they had wings and the wings were big and they went from one end of the room to the other end of the room. This, is whole, this whole thing is quite remarkable. That kol kirot abayit mesev kalepi tuchet miklod kruvim kol kirot abayit. You see, there were no longer, there were no uh, um, curtains in the Beit HaMikdash. The Beit HaMikdash was made out of real stuff that was supposed to last, like stone. It didn't last. But it could have lasted. And on this stone, on this stone there was Kol Kirot Abayit, Pasuk Kavtet, Mesav Kelei Pituchei Miklaot Kruvim Utimorot Ufiturei Tzitzim Milifnim Ulevelachitzon. So you had, uh, you see, Rashi says in Pasuk Kavtet, Miklaot Pituchei, Pituchim are engraved, things that are engraved. Miklaot Kruvim Chakukei, Tzirat Kruvim. There was engraved in the walls of the Beit HaMikdash, there were these figures, Kruvim figures. Now we don't know what Kruvim are, because they can either look like children, or they can look like animals, they can look like lions, they can look like... So here Rashi says that they were Tzurat Kruvim without telling us what this is. Udikalim v'chavalim u'pirachim. So they had uh, date trees and, and flowers of all kinds. There's all, all that and, and, and things, ropes, like connecting them in the design. Okay? So we see that Shlomo HaMelech took it upon himself to expand the notion of Kruvim. And for Shlomo HaMelech, there were not only Kruvim on the Aron, which came to him from Moshe Rabbeinu, but he made his own Kruvim. And these Kruvim were not made of gold, but they were made out of olive wood. His kruvim did not sit on the aron, but they sat on the floor, in the dvir, in the Kodesh Kodashim. So I think that, uh, that it's a little difficult to understand what it is that is going on with these kruvim. And then it goes on to tell us that there were, that the kruvim, that there were kruvim, and the kruvim were here, the kruvim were there, etc. Now let's look at page 3. Vayas bevet kodesh kodeshim kruvim shnayim maset satsuim vayitzapu otam zahab. So this is a pasuk in Devrei Hayamim, right? Chronicles, which generally tells the same story, but sometimes has details that are missing in Melachim. And here we have this word maset satsuim, maset satsuim, satsuim. We know in modern Hebrew, a toys. 
צעצועים דוגמת טוב, רש"י סס, הצאצאים והציפיות ותרגמו בנעיה תבנית ילדים וילדות עשה לכרובים כרביה ושל עץ היו ושוב ויצפיהם זהב. So, he said, צעצועים doesn't refer to the toys, but the people who, for whom the toys are designed. And so that's the children. And therefore, the, uh, the, the were I mean, it's like a really strange way of saying it, but according to Rashi, it's all fine. There's no doubt that, the post, that these two people are talking about the Kruvim of Shlomo HaMelech. And therefore, we have another source. We have another source for the fact that Shlomo HaMelech made these odd Kruvim. Now, you know that at the end, before the Churban by Rishon, the Aron was, uh, was hidden away. The Aron and the Kruvim on the Aron were hidden away. And in the, in the Bayit Sheini, in the Bayit that was built after Ezra came back to Eretz Yisrael, there was a Kodesh, Kodashim, but there was no Aron. It was the Aron in, 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 in theory, right, the way Chazal understood it. The poetry of Chazal is that the Aron HaKodesh had to be ours. In spite of the fact that the that the Beit HaMikdash was going to be destroyed. So Chazal said that the Aron was hidden away. We hid it. We hid it so well that we couldn't find it at the time of the building of the Beit HaMikdash in Ezra. But just because we couldn't find it doesn't mean apparently that it's not ours. Right? This is different then the Kalim, for example, that were taken by the Romans to Rome, right? You know, that famous arch that has those little pictures on it of schlepping the menorah to Rome. That's the menorah, but it's not the Aron. I tell you this as, a, as an, independent, an independent kind of uh, piece of information, which I hope will help us to understand. I have also this, uh, this is a, a good book. This is called Beit HaMikdash HaRishon, which is pri- part of a trilogy. Beit HaMikdash HaRishon, Beit HaMikdash HaSheni, and Beit HaMikdash HaShlishi. All written by somebody in Yerushalayim, whose name is Steinberg, and I remember when I was a kid, and we had to learn Chodesh Shemot, and of course, no one could understand what it says and what it was about. So you had these little pamphlets that had pictures of the Beit HaMikdash and the Kalim, etc. And uh, this guy did it. He did it. Now, he, he is not the... Um, I think, you know, he's a Haredi guy. So he would never uh, uh, use the results of modern scholarship. But he's willing to copy the pictures that were originally done by Goyim. You know, so that's like a special, that's like has to do with memory, you know, if you forget. But in any event, I want to show you his picture, which is okay, I mean. Uh, yeah, Jesse, can you see it? This is his picture of the Kodesh Kodeshim. Here, this, this, <laughs> this picture here. 
Uh, you can see it. I'll pass it around. There's not what you're supposed to do. I remember show and tell in school. You then you make believe everybody can see it, and then you pass it around. So I'll pass it around. But you see, if you look at it, you'll see there's an aron, and on the aron there are two kruvim, right? And then standing there are these two gigantic kruvim. And this is his picture. I mean, this picture doesn't mean anything. It certainly doesn't mean that that's the way it was. But I will, let me just pass it around so you'll be able to, uh, you'll have something to do while I'm talking. Which is always good. Now look. The Rishonim, in their commentaries on the, on the Rabbeinu on the, on the, I'm sorry, on the Kruvim, the Rabbeinu B'chaya, the Barbanel, the uh, various, uh, inter- various interpreters who try to get some sort of feeling of what these Kruvim might have been, they all quote this Rambam. They all quote this Rambam, which is written in Rambamesque, in the Guide to the Perplexed. And, uh, and of course, I mean, I don't understand a word that the Rambam says, usually. I don't understand the guy to the perplex, but we're going to read a little bit together. We'll get the idea, that the, the Rambam's idea. The Rambam says this. You see the guy to the perplex, 345. This is the Friedlander translation, which is today out of date, generally speaking. Nobody uses this translation, but it's on the Bari Lan. So, there you have it. And the other translation, the good translation, of course, is not available in this way. So he says, naturally, the fundamental belief in prophecy believes the belief in the law, precedes the belief in the law. True? In other words, since Torah, law here means Torah, Torah is prophecy. So you have to believe in prophecy. If somebody doesn't believe that God could tell man what to do, so then you can't have a Torah. But a prophet only receives divine inspiration through the agency of an angel. In other words, to say that the prophet talks to God, that's hubris, according to the Rambam. How does a prophet talk to God? So, the prophet talks to the intermediary that God created for this purpose. And the intermediary that God created for this purpose, we give it a name, we call it angel. We call it angel. This is the Rambam. The angel of the Lord called. The angel of the Lord said unto her. And other innumerable instances where God speaks to man through an angel. Even Moses, our teacher, receives first prophecy through an angel. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire. That's in Perigimel and Shemos. Where first an angel appears to Moshe Rabbeinu and then HaKadosh Baruch Hu appears, apparently. It is therefore dear that the belief of the existence of the angels precedes the belief in prophecy, and the latter precedes the belief in the law. So in order for a person to believe in the Torah, in order for me to believe that there could be a Torah, I have to believe in in prophecy. I have to believe in angels. In order to believe in prophecy, in order to believe in Torah. That's how the Rambam understands. Right? He says, like, so if, if a person says, I believe God gave the Torah to, to, to Bnei Yisrael. So then the Samnudnik 
will come and say to you, well, how did that happen? Like, how did this, you know, take place? So the Rambam has an answer. The way it happened was that God created an intermediary which spoke to the people, and therefore it was as though the people were speaking to, to God. The Sabaeans, in their ex- ignorance of the existence of God, believed that the spheres of the stars were being, well, we're not interested in the, in the, in the uh, Sabaeans and the Asherot, and all of that. So we're going, let's, we'll skip a little. He says, in order to firmly establish this creed, now if you look, this is about three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven lines from the bottom. In order to firmly establish this creed, creed is like a belief or this understanding, in order that we should understand this, God commanded the Israelites to make over the ark the form of two angels. Now you remember Chazal. Chazal said that the word Kruvim, the protectors of Gan Eden, what were the Kruvim? They were angels. That's what, the, that's what Chazal said. The Rabbab says, in order to firmly establish this creed, in order to make sure that there would no, be no doubt about it, so God commanded to make over the ark the form of two angels. The belief in the existence of angels is thus inculcated into the minds of the people, and this belief is in importance next to belief in God's existence. It was the primary thing that Jews believe is that God, that there is a God, that God created the world. But really, as we always say, Avram Avinu invented the idea or understood that it might be that God wants something of us. That was not the same as believing in God. A person might believe in God, but think that there's no reason to imagine that God wants us to do anything. Or that God wants us to relate to God. That we would be like, the, uh, like the, uh, those little mice running around on a treadmill, and God would be watching the treadmill. There would be no, there'd be no necessary relationship, no. But the belief in God's existence is in prophecy and law and opposes idolatry. If there had only been one figure of a cherub, now, a cherub, cherub uh, you have to understand, cherub is a kruv. And if you don't understand or know what a kruv is, believe me, in spite of Hallmark cards, you also don't know what a cherub is. Because it's the same thing. Right? So you can't say you know one and you don't know the other. But we don't know either. We don't know what exactly they looked like. But he said, if there had been only one figure of a cherub, that was explaining why there were two of them. If the idea is that God spoke to B'nai Yisrael through the angel, and that's how prophecy came to be, that people would have been misled and would have mistaken for God's image, which was to be worshipped in the fashion of the heathen. Because they might have thought that they should worship the Kruv, the Kruvim. Or they might have assumed that the angel was also a deity, and would thus have adopted a dualism, which is also not a good thing to do. By making two cherubim, and distinctly declaring the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, Moses dearly proclaimed the theory of the existence of the number of angels. He left no room for the error of considering those figures as deities, since he declared that God is one.
and that he is the creator of the angels who are more than one soul. But the Rambam says to us, the Rambam, the Moran of The Rambam says, look, you know, uh, I'm going to tell you about Kruvim. Why they are Kruvim on the Aaron Kodesh. And then he proceeds to say, because every, all the Jews are, are great philosophers. And since they are great philosophers, they're totally consumed by this question of where prophecy came from. And the re- where prophecy came from was from the angels. And how do you know that Kruvim are angels? Lo there. Unless you accept the position of Chazal that the Kruvim that stayed, that, held, that, that kept the, the Ottoman and Chava out of Gan Eden, were angels. So certainly, the Rambam... The idea that the Rambam is promoting, which is that a person has to understand that for God to speak to man, there has to be some sort of a media, a, a, an intermediary. Even though you understand that all of these things have to do with some kind of systemic idea that the Rambam had, I mean, God could do anything. He could do it this way, he could do it that way, it doesn't matter. But what it is that would help us, why it would help us that there are Kruvim on the Iron Kodesh that we never see and we have nothing to do with, I don't know, unless the Rambam is talking about the Kruvim that they put on the Yeriot, on the curtains, and that Shlomo HaMelech put in the walls of the Beit HaMikdash, in which case, again, the Kruvim on the Iron Kodesh are not important. Okay, so this week, I was learning a Pachad Yitzhak with a very good friend of mine from South Africa. You know, today you can do that. I mean, he was in South Africa, and I was in Yerushalayim. That's what I mean. If he had been in Yerushalayim, we would never have gotten together to learn. Because it would have been too difficult. We would like, where are you, at what time, and where this, we'd never be able to do it. But since he's in South Africa, it was a, a piece of cake, no problem. So we learned, we learned this, uh, this uh, ma'amar, he called it, this ma'amar of Hutner on Shabbos. These are the, this is what the book looks like. Of Hutner on Shabbos, ma'amar Zion. But I'll just look up the paragraph. The paragraphs are numbered. The paragraphs are numbered. Um, hey, Mamar Zion, paragraph A. For those of you who are interested, it's really, uh, it's always a treat to learn uh, Rav Hutner's Ma'amarim. So Rav Hutner says this. He says this. He says, he doesn't understand. If you categorize Torah, as basically having two um, elements. One is called Torah Shebech Ktav, and the other is called Torah Shebaal Peh. Like if you categorize Torah like that, and you'll understand. And, and so, the, so the question is going to be, so what were the Luchot? What were the Luchot HaBrit? Were they Torah Shebech or not Torah Shabbat I mean, it's true that the Luchot were etched, right? Words were etched into the Torah, which would make them Torah Shabbat theoretically. But now I'm, I'm going to deviate. It all, I mean, the source of what I'm going to say is in Rav Hutner, but I'm going to say, I'm not quoting Rav Hutner anymore, right? I'm going to say what I want to say. So there's a difference between Torah Shebechtav and Torah Shebaalpeh. Torah Shebechtav is inscrutable. There's no way to understand it. It's not possible. 
to understand Tarashi Bikhtab, because Tarashi Bikhtab is made up of words, real words. And those words have real meanings. And there's no way that we can ever get to the real meaning, the real meaning of a word. Uh, go into a uh, class, to a literature class, any literature, any language. Not that I know all those languages, but it doesn't matter. And you read a line, and then you say to the students, what do you think it means? Every student will think it means something else. And the something else has to do with a lot of associations that people have. You have a word. Well, what's the primary meaning of the word? What's the secondary or tertiary meaning of the word? What is the best meaning of the word in context? Maybe what is written by that particular literary great, uh, uh, he, he wanted to, to show us that the word could be used in an odd way, in a different way. You know, and he wanted you to remember. He wanted you to remember if, uh, if Frost had not said it, you wouldn't remember it, but since he said it, you remember that there is a road less traveled. Now, what does that mean? I mean, road less traveled. And he said it. So you could think about it. That's the nature of the written word. The nature, I said again, the nature of the written word is that it's inscrutable. It cannot be understood. Tarash of Alpeh. is all understanding. Because it only exists in our understanding of things. I mean, it's true that we make the mistake of thinking that there's a similarity because Tarash of Alpeh, that Tarash of Alpeh is, is a text. There's a Gemara. There's a Mishnah. There's a Gemara. There's a Tosefta. There's a Chodor. So we say, oh, it's also Tarash of but it's not. They're just notes. Notes that were taken in the course of the generations about the thoughts that Am Yisrael had. Of course, it was the thoughts of the most significant thinkers in Am Yisrael. But at the end of the day, the Torah Peh is scrutinizable. You could figure it out. Which doesn't mean that the way you figure it out is unique, or the only way to figure it out, other ever. It's like conversation. Conversation is multifaceted. You can't say, you can't say, oh, you didn't understand it correctly. I understood it the way I understood it. You can't say, oh, he meant this and not that. I mean, you could say it, but you know that that's not true. It's the way people understand it that counts. So Torah Peh, the halacha is, you can't do Torah Shemichtav Baal Peh. You can't do Torah Shemichtav orally. Why not? Just, it just, then it's not Torah Shemichtav anymore. And you can't do Torah Peh in writing. Because that would force the Torah Peh into a kind of a crucible that... You could never get out of. And that's not what Torah Shemal Peh is. So the Torah was given to us in two forms. One inscrutable and the other friendly. 
But we know. We know that the closest thing that we come to understanding the Torah Shebikhtav is the Torah Shebikhtav of it. And what Rashi is, for example, on the Torah of the Tanakh, Rashi is the Torah Shebikhtav, the Torah Shebikhtav, that you could understand. That you can understand. The Ramban, who, uh, who put in Kabbalistic interpretation into his understanding of the Chumash, he said, there's a Kabbalistic Torah Shebikhtav that fits in with the Torah Shebikhtav. But Torah Shebikhtav, this has always been an issue with Mephoshim. Now, I'm not saying that there are no Mephoshim who tried to say what we call Pshat, who tried to get out the words. It's a discussion. It's a discussion for another time. But Rav Hutna seems to imply that this Torah Shebikhtav and this Torah Shebaal Peh, and we know to distinguish them, that the Torah Shebikhtav is what we receive from Moshe Rabbeinu in the desert, and we have it generation after generation after generation. We understand that basically it's not, it's inscrutable. That if we didn't have a commentary, if Moshe Rabbeinu didn't teach us the Chumash, and if we didn't have Torah Shabbat Peh, then we wouldn't have the Chumash. We wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't be able to take a step in understanding the Chumash. Torah Shabbat Peh, on the other hand, is a living organism. It breathes, it develops every generation, every place, every country, every nation made its contribution to what we call Torah Shavalpeh. Torah Shavalpeh is like, it's like flowers. They keep growing. Wherever you put them down, there's another flower. Everybody who learns anything and talks about it is involved in the creation of Torah Shavalpeh. Okay, not every creation is going to be recorded forever. So some people say things, they learn things, and they're forgotten, but, but they're involved in the process of creating and disseminating Tarash The one exclusion, the one exclusion, this Rav Hutta says, to this dichotomy, are the Luchot. Are the Luchot. And he says that the Luchot represent represent the fact that ultimately we should be able to understand the Torah Shabbat because the Luchot for him combine both because as I told you earlier Rav Sadiagon and others say that the Aser de Debrot they contain everything but where do they contain everything? ah if you really understood the written word of God in the Luchot, you would know everything. So you don't understand everything. You don't understand everything, so you need Tarash Peh. But if you really understood the Tarash Bechnam, you wouldn't need the Tarash Peh, because that real understanding would encompass everything. So that the Luchot represent the real understanding. The Luchot represent the real understanding. The Luchot were put in the Aron. Because we were enjoined to remember. We are enjoined to remember that we don't really understand it. And that there is an understanding beyond our understanding. And that understanding is called Luchot. 
That understanding is what we call Luchot. And the Rambam says that the Kruvim, the Kruvim remind us that no matter how close we think we were to the Word of God at Har Sinai, the Kruvim, and no matter how happy we are about the fact that the angels made it possible for prophecy, which made it possible for Torah, we're happy about that. But we understand, as perhaps the Kabbalist would say, that God, angels, prophecy, Torah, even though I believe it to be true, I understand that it loses something in the uh, translation. That by the time the Torah comes from God and ends up with me, I mean, I just can't. I can't claim that my understanding is comparable to the, uh, to the enterprise. So that the Kodesh Kadashim, the hidden part of the, of the Beit HaMikdash, represents the truth. The truth is in the Torah Shebikhtaf. And it's understanding. We don't have the capacity to make that truth ours in a perfect sense. And we're reminded of that by two things. First, that the Luchot Abrit, which are neither Torah Shevichtav nor Torah Shevichtav, because they're written, but they encompass everything. The Torah Shevichtav is in the Aron, which we never look at and we never see, because it would be pointless. What will we see? What will we understand? And the Kruvim, who according to the Rambam, remind us that our understanding, while it's noble and it's remarkable, and it calls upon this hierarchy of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to angels, to prophets, to B'nai Yisrael, in spite of that fact, it retains the notion of the, of the mystery. And so Shlomo HaMelech thought that, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and building the Mishkan, thought that this was so important that even though you couldn't see the Kruvim, you would be reminded of the Kruvim because they put them all around in places that you could see and be reminded of. And what were you reminded of? That the Kruvim was a place on top of the Aron where the Word of God came to Moshe Rabbeinu implying that we understand but we don't understand perfectly. Have a good show.